The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is October 14th, 2022, 3pm North American Eastern Time, 4pm in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30pm in Newfoundland, 8pm in Dublin and London, 9pm in Paris and Berlin, 10pm in Kiev and Moscow, 10.30pm in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the of our time zone, midnight in Islamabad, midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter hour time zone, 3 a.m. in Singapore and Hong Kong, 6 a.m. in Melbourne and Sydney, 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland, and an even more convivial hour for the kippers and kedgeree beyond. On this day, 45 years ago, on a golf course in Spain, Bing Crosby dropped dead. Biggest selling recording artist in the world. Uh, And he just finished a terrific round on a beautiful golf course, heading off uh, to the 19th hole, and he dropped dead. Uh, On this day, 700 years ago, October 22nd, 1322, Robert the Bruce, Robert the Bruce, which is a much better name than Bruce the Robert, uh, King of Scots, defeated King Edward II of England at the Battle of Old Byland, or uh, uh, the Battle of Scotch Corner, if you prefer. I can't remember which one we called it when I was a schoolboy. Anyway, it was uh, Scotton Moor in Yorkshire. That's that's what you may know it better as. And it was the most significant Scots military victory since Bannockburn, a complete rout of the English, uh, many of whom were killed in flight. And the king himself, ever chicken hearted and luckless in war, which is about all I remember of Edward II, the king himself scrammed in such haste he left most of his valuables behind. There has never been. Such a humiliating fiasco for the English until, um, oh, I don't know, Liz Truss's chancellor introduced his mini budget. You know how this works. Uh, Anybody uh, of the eight billion people and change around the planet are free to listen. You only have to be a Mark Stein Club member if you want to ask a question. So if you don't want to ask a question, it's no big deal and you don't need to uh, join the club. But we are glad to have you along anyway. Uh, Eric Dale writes, Mark, seeing that you're a multimillionaire, according to Stop the Oil Guy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. That was on uh, the Mark Sign show yesterday when um, when Alex de Kerning from Stop the Oil 
said I was a multimillionaire because he'd Googled it. And so he'd found some website that said I was worth $79 million, I think it was. Uh, that's, uh, that's good to know. <laughs> Just as long as PayPal, PayPal doesn't freeze it. Uh, <laughs> Eric says, how about lending a few bucks to me? Maybe I won't bring Lulu or waive my constitution somewhere. I don't want to have to start bribing people. Uh, not to waive their constitutions or to uh, eschew bringing Lulu. Uh, on the more serious note, Eric adds, if there is such abundant and cheap, clean energy, why is stop the oil out lobbying rather than building the energy company that puts the oil companies out of business? Quite frankly, if Germany could power itself on tidal and wind energy, why would it or any other country even deal with Russia at all? Why would the rest of us even deal with Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Iran? Yeah, we we see, you know, I did a whole uh, thing on this and I don't remember the numbers, but at the time Obama was subsidizing Obama and the Spaniards were subsidizing all these green energy companies. And in fact, without the subsidies, they wouldn't exist, uh, not at all. And and that's really the, the, the point we see now. There isn't enough of it. It doesn't matter what the unit cost of a megawatt hour of this stuff is. There isn't enough of it. And so you see the pitiful sight of the man who's supposedly the leader of the free world, Joe Biden, when he's not giving speeches claiming that uh, his son, who died of brain cancer in Delaware, died in combat in Iraq, when he's not absolutely deluded and flown the coop, they shove him off to Saudi Arabia to be humiliated uh, by making him grovel to Saudi princes. And then the minute his flights cleared Saudi airspace and he's on his way back to Washington, they announce that they're cutting oil production. Uh, the, you know, uh, renewables is where first world nations go to die. Uh, that is what is going to be happening in Germany unless global warming is real and they have a sizzling summer. You know, Germany doesn't have great weather. If you've if you've ever been to those resorts on uh, what do they call it, the Ostsee, the East Sea, it's basically the Baltic way up there. Uh, I spent some time talking to victims of um, uh, Angela Merkel's immigration policy up there. Even in the summer, it's bloody chilly, <laughs> and you don't. It's got that German healthy thing where you throw yourself into freezing cold Baltic water and uh, jump up and down and kid yourself you're having a grand old time. But if if it's uh, if winter is as the uh, is not afflicted by global warming and these 40 Celsius temperatures, uh, I can't figure out what that is in Fahrenheit right now. I'm a bit uh, distracted by Ofcom complaints. So... Uh, I didn't rehearse whatever 40 Celsius is in uh, Fahrenheit, but it, Germany Germany hasn't got enough. That's it. America hasn't got enough. America is an energy-rich nation that has chosen to make itself an energy-poor nation. Same with uh, Germany, same with a lot of countries. And, and if you look at all the money, for example, that is put into promoting the concept of global warming. This is Eric's central idea. And it's actually quite a good one. 
If you think that all the money that is being put into global warming were to actually be put into a renewables company uh, like Tidal Energy, for example, that uh, all these people talk about, you could corner the market in Tidal Energy and put uh, Shell and uh, BP and ExxonMobil and all in total, uh, all of them out of business uh, if this thing were real. But at the moment, you know, Whatever the unit cost is, there isn't enough of it and people are going to freeze and die. That's a very good point, uh, Eric. Tom Lewis. So, by the way, I want to thank people uh, just before I go on. I really am terribly appreciative of all the people who tune in to the Mark Stein show every night. We didn't have a big – we had what they call a soft launch. It was a soft launch on me. I wasn't told I was going to be doing – a nightly television show in perpetuity. Uh, I was sort of uh, finagled into it by some bloke who told me I'd only be doing it for two weeks because they had some fantastic new show in development. And uh, the end of the two weeks has never come. And so I'm still there. But uh, what I, I'm very, so we didn't have like a big splashy launch, say, with me sitting in Rupert Murdoch's garden and having a PIMS while he sits there and writes me a cheque for £50 million, which is what Rupert did with Piers Morgan. Uh, so we've had a, we've had a, so we, we haven't had a big launch as he had. Uh, Rupert very kindly bought Piers Morgan every bus side, every bus shelter, every railway carriage poster, uh, in the UK, and it still turns out nobody wants to watch it. So I'm, I'm very, I'm actually very grateful for that, and I'm thankful to everyone who tunes in. the The audience just continues to grow. It's not a big deal. It's not a, you know, I'm, I sort of never expected to be on television at my age, and uh, I'm, you know, I, 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 I do it because. I was tired of doing things that didn't make any difference. You know, I, I worked in a lot of different countries and I made a small difference, sometimes quite a big difference. Get, getting Section uh, 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act repealed is actually a big thing for as long as it lasts. It got the Canadian state out of the censorship business. I had high hopes of doing the same thing in Australia, but it's harder to do at one remove and I think I would have actually had to go there and hold the guys, live there, basically, and hold the guys' feet for the fire, feet to the fire. So we didn't pull that off. Um, but in, in the UK, the show's been running a while. And as I point out, and I don't do this to boast, it just happens to be a fact, a majority of the people who've received compensation for being killed or bereaved by the COVID vaccines are those who've appeared on the Mark Stein show. So if you want to get money from the government, appearing on the Mark Stein show is quite a good way to do it, quite an effective way to do it, because the government is concerned to hold this thing down and prevent it getting out of hand, which is one reason why we get tied up with Ofcom complaints and BBC assholes like uh, Dr. Matthew Sweet. But that I'm, I'm very pleased that people who were faced with uh, having to sell their homes to survive. They, they, they've had legs amputated. Uh, they're, they're full of blood clots. Uh, they've got uh, splitting headaches that go on unceasingly for six weeks. They can't work. They can't drive. 
uh, to go to work, never mind do the job when they get there. And I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, £120,000, which isn't a lot, but it, it, it enables them to get through until, you know, whatever the ultimate resolution of this thing is. I'm, I'm pleased to do that. And the other reason I do the show is to promote uh, some uh, talent uh, that's a quarter my age, such as uh, Ava Velardinger broke uh, and Alexandra Marshall and others you're familiar with on the show, because I think I think uh, I think they're going to be important voices in the years ahead, and I I, I want to make sure they get a platform. Um, I got I, I've said this before, but you know who cares if I make a couple of amusing jokes on Fox News about Andrew Cuomo's dog? It, that's not really anything. We have huge problems. And certainly the American right has done nothing for them. I mean, it's had election victories that have not resulted in the role. Even 9-11 did not uh, result in a rollback of the cultural rot. If you recall... You know, whether it's George W. Bush immediately lapsing into religion of peace mode or whether it's the left demanding to know uh, why they why do our enemies hate us? Uh, you know, 3000 dead vaporized people in the heart of New York City did not persuade the Americans to reverse the cultural rot. And so the idea that, you know, midterm elections will do it, I think, is a bit of a is a bit of a long shot. So and I don't know really what, you know, as I think about it, I don't know. Talk radio, for example, seems to me actually to have died as a medium with Rush. It do, it's not even talk. It's, it's not even talking from first principles, as Rush always did. Uh, so it's it's just sort of, you know, AOC gags. Hunter laptop gags. I don't. I don't quite get it. So I'm, I've enjoyed in a country I'm not really familiar with all my knowledge of uh, UK pop culture <clears throat> ended. Uh, you know, what a half a lifetime ago. Um, but I'm. Uh, but I'm. I'm. I'm pleased the show is making a small difference in in P and that goes in other areas too, such as the victims of grooming gangs and all kinds of things. So we start, stagger on, and I'm glad we're being rewarded in the ratings, and I thank you for that. Uh, Tom Lewis says, Hi, Mark. Thanks for GB News talking about things that really matter. Would you venture a guess as to a possible outcome of Ukraine versus Putin? Well, I was there in Ukraine, and, um, you know, I don't want to exaggerate the danger of it. Most parts of Ukraine are perfectly safe to walk around because aside from random bombing raids, uh, Putin very quickly was forced back to what are essentially Russian-held areas. I've compared Ukraine and Russia to England and Ireland. There are people in Ireland who just want to be Irish. There are people in Ireland who see no difficulty in being both Irish and British. There's two types of Irishmen. And in some ways, there are two types of Ukrainian. There are Ukrainians who just want to be Ukrainian, and there are Ukrainians who want to be both Ukrainian and Russian. And that has applied, as with the Anglo-Irish thing, that has applied Russia-Ukraine across centuries. I, I made the opinion, I think, on one of those shows I did from Ukraine that I thought 
Ukraine would ultimately win the war militarily. And I think that is still likely to happen just because the Russian conscripts have no stomach uh, for this fight for whatever reason. You know, it's always it always goes much better, as actually the Pentagon should have figured out by now, that if one side is fighting for its homeland and the other is just doing tours of duty, as they're called, interesting name because it it makes it sound like doing a tour of Italy. You're just you're just passing through. And the guys who aren't passing through have much more incentive to fight as a general rule of warfare. So I can quite see the Ukrainians winning the fight on the ground were it not for the fact that we have this bizarre situation outside Ukraine uh, where uh, people like Joe Biden and Lindsey Graham, the basically the, the unipart, the Washington warmonger uniparty, is keeps trying to escalate the thing. And at some point, you know, we've had recent escalations, the blowing up of that bridge between Crimea and Russia, the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. It's almost as if there are people out there, whoever they are, who are egging Putin, sitting on the world's biggest nuclear arsenal, uh, to actually go nuclear. nuclear. So I, I don't think the actual... Uh, logistics on the ground in Ukraine and what's ultimately going to decide this thing. Um, Anyway, that's what Tom Lewis says. He says, I know it's a stretch, but you're the best prognosticator. I know the proof. I read America Alone in 2006. Well, you know, I like America Alone when I read it because it reminds me in a strange way of of the optimism of those days, if if that doesn't sound faintly ridiculous. In other words, I didn't yet think, I I thought, I still took a lot of things at face value, which is that um, we were up against some pretty tough numbers. It was, it's a book about demography. It basically says, if you don't do anything, uh, the West is going to lose without anyone firing a shot because the West is undergoing huge demographic transformation. And I had serious conversations with serious people, presidents and prime ministers and princes and a couple of princes who have since become kings, a couple of queens I found uh, rather agreeable. Um, all o- all over the map, uh, and in 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 elsewhere in His Majesty's dominions, with governors general and prime ministers, and they all took the thing seriously. They all took the thing seriously. Uh, Dick Cheney um, said to me, "Oh, so this is like the biggest paradigm shift of our times." <laughs> you know, so there's a guy taking it, appearing to me to take it seriously. But we weren't serious about winning the easy part of the war, which is defeating the goatherds. You know, as I said, America can't defeat goatherds with fertilizer. So why you want to listen to chiefs of staff who can't defeat goatherds with fertilizer is a mystery. Oh, General, thank you for your service. We're pleased to be joined now by General uh, so-and-so and so-and-so. He's uh, served in uh, Vietnam. Uh, he's served in uh, Korea. He's served in Iraq. He's served in Africa. Why, why the hell would you want to take lessons from that guy? You know, Oh, but he also organized the Iranian helicopters in the desert. Oh, that's fantastic. Bring him on. You know, when your way of war doesn't work, it's a good sign that 
subtler things, subtler kinds of warfare, such as the warfare. You know, I heard I heard a thing, uh, Bill Hemmer on Fox News yesterday, and he was talking about some new high-speed train between Jakarta in Indonesia and uh, Bali that cuts the time of the train journey from three hours to 40 minutes. That's pretty bloody great. And then he says casually at the end, it's being built as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And he doesn't say what that is. So everybody thinks they've just heard a happy story of technological innovation, which is that you can now get from Jakarta to Bali in 40 minutes. Uh, and they don't tell you that, in fact, the Chinese are doing it as part of their campaign to buy up every bit of the world that matters so that America and the West don't matter. Uh, and they're doing rather well in America and the West, too. Um, and uh, they um, uh, simply, simply put... Uh, they bought up everyone they need to buy up. You know, the, the thing about the Hunter Biden thing, and this is where the taxes and the hookers and the gun purchase are a distraction. So when, oh, the, uh, the uh, FBI has leaked that they're considering prosecuting Hunter Biden for uh, lying about a gun purchase, the, the gun purchase and the hookers and the tax fraud is the nickel and dime stuff to distract you from the fact that the ruling family, the guy in the Oval Office, his brother, his corrupt brother and his idiot son are wholly owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Timothy McDonald says, Mark, I'm sorry to say, but I think your interview with the pathetic Alex de Kerning of Stop Oil Now missed the mark. The great thing about your show is that you budget the time of your show in order to deep dive into important subjects. However, debating doesn't always show well on camera. People like Mr. de Kerning have absolutely no understanding of history. Look, uh, just before you, you know, uh, we had uh, like amazing numbers last night for that segment. Uh, so, uh, so the production team is very excited about like bringing on some seventeen-year-old to beat the crap of out of me every evening, and because they, they think it would be uh, good television, as people in television like to say. Uh, it's I'm not, you know. It didn't go well, and that's my fault as as the host. But anyway, uh, uh, Timothy McDonald says, people like Mr. De it's hard. I hate that kind of television. I find it hard to watch. Uh, so it's not something I'm terribly interested in doing. Um, but I take, I take the blame for that because I like the conversation that followed where I talk calmly to a lady uh, Harriet Sargent, who was very interested in little girls being raped uh, by Pakistani Muslim men up and down England. And that's a subject nobody else talks about. No, none of these shows do it. You know, Piers Morgan is, is uh, Rupert Murdoch just has Piers doing 50 million quid clickbait and nobody clicks. I mean, there's nothing, 
more pathetic, really, than clickless clickbait. It, uh, if you're going to die in the ratings, it'd be better to die for grooming gangs and vaccine injuries, which are at least substantive things. But Timothy McDonald continues, people like Mr. De Kerning have absolutely no understanding of history. He's 24. For the past 12 years, he's heard nothing but climate change. He's completely unaware of the fact that people in Britain have died from heat-related problems for decades. Well, you know, as I said, this is... Uh, going with the uh, thing, oh, it's 40 degrees. It was 40 degrees for two days. I have to follow. I've been trying to get GB News to dump the weather because the weather is a, is a big turnoff moment uh, that comes at the top of the hour when they go, oh, uh, and all that. I stand there every night and I go, and all that's coming up after the weather. Oh, what's the weather today? Well, it's uh, it's 53 and cloudy in Glasgow, uh, but it's uh, 54 and partly sunny in Belfast. And then the following day, it's 53 and partly cloudy in Belfast and 54 and partly sunny in Glasgow. Just, that's, that's how it is. Except for one day, suddenly, oh, my word. Uh, Suddenly it's whatever 40 degrees Celsius is. uh, 54 Fahrenheit I was talking about. So um, Timothy says people, so I, I, you know, that's weather. It isn't climate. Every time you talk about the weather, people say, oh, climate isn't weather. Weather's what happens today and tomorrow. Climate is the longer trend. Uh, except when they want to use the 40-degree thing to get it. Uh, he's, un- he's completely aware of the fact that people in Britain have died from heat-related problems for decades, says Timothy MacDonald. Virtually no one in Britain had air conditioning in their homes or offices before 1970. For most people, they just toughed it out for the five days of the year when the heat was excessive. All this has happened before. That's true, as anyone who remembers the summer of... Uh, 1976, when it went on day in, day out. Um, And nobody then, because the official story was that we were in for global cooling and we were all going to die in an ice age, nobody then went hysterical about the British summer of 1976. Uh, Virtually no one in Britain had air conditioning in their homes or offices before 1970. They just toughed it out for the five days of the year when the heat was excessive. The reason people died this year is that Britain now has a large number of elderly have been able to live for a long time due to the advances in medicine and technology over the last hundred years. Without those advances, the vast majority of the people that died this year from excessive heat would have never reached their advanced age. They would never have died of heat stroke. Most would have died many years before of a stroke or a heart attack or an infection of some sort or cancer or tobacco use or the accumulated effects that come with chronic pain from a lifetime of work without the benefits of modern transportation and labor-saving equipment. But to think this way, one has to understand calculus, the study of change over time. But Mr. De Koenig is 24 and he doesn't understand the passage of time. All he knows is today. And as you say, permanence is the illusion of every age. So I think you would have been better served by not debating him, but instead simply asking him open-ended questions. Let him pontificate on all kinds of subjects. Get him on the record. Ask follow-up questions to flesh his ideas out. This is great. <laughs> this is great stuff. You should be teaching a broadcasting course, Timothy. I, w- I wish you'd been around when I was starting out, when I was 14 years old and uh, and uh, doing a, a disc jockey spot on the kids' show. Um, 
Get him on the record, ask follow-up questions, flesh his ideas out. By doing that, other media may start asking more questions. Said all we got to see was a clueless 24-year-old call you a racist for not wanting to move Somalia to Great Britain. Will you consider doing this instead? I love getting ad- I love getting advice, and that is certainly a good advice. So I, I thank you for that. We may get him back on because, as he, as you may recall, he uh, he said that the uh, the business of uh, uh, gluing themselves to Leonardo's fantastic, not Leonardo, what am I on about? A uh, constable. I shouldn't be confronting, confusing constable and Leonardo. Constable's fabulous painting, the Hayway. And he said, oh, well, they only glued themselves to the frame. That's a pretty good fancy frame it has, actually. And they did do surface damage to the varnish on the painting. Well, since then, they've thrown ketchup over Van Gogh, the uh, sunflowers thing. Or Van Gogh. Van Gogh, as Martha Stewart would say. Uh, Van Gogh as uh, the sunflowers. And uh, and so I don't think he can make his argument that they're just damaging the frame of these things. So we may get him uh, back on. Uh, let's have a quick musical interlude as we approach the bottom of the hour. Unless you're in Newfoundland or... Uh, Iran or Nepal or one of our other uh, uh, time zones that are half an hour or 45 minutes uh, ahead. Luis Bonfa. Do you know that name? He was born a century ago on Monday, January 17th, 1922 in Rio de Janeiro. He was a guitarist, a composer, a big player in the bossa nova scene that swept the world in the 60s. But as far as uh, the Anglo crowd are concerned, Mr. Bonfar is something of a one-hit wonder. Uh, But that's kind of disguised because very cleverly, his one hit has half a dozen Uh, different names. There are several English lyrics, but even as an instrumental, it wears different hats. It it was uh, written for a 1959 film by the French director Marcel Camus, but you may know it variously as Mania de Carnaval or Black Orpheus. De um dia 
feliz que chegou O sol no céu surgiu E em cada cor brilhou Voltou o sonho então Ao coração Depois deste dia feliz Não sei se outro dia haverá É nossa manhã Tão bela final manhã de carnaval Canta o meu coração Alegria voltou tão feliz Amanhã desse amor Astrid Gilberto with Maniadi Carnaval from the film Black Orpheus or Black Orpheus, if you prefer. Portuguese lyrics by Antonio Maria, music by Luis Bonfar. The film was a hit and so was Mr. Bonfar's theme, which is heard a lot in the picture and which became one of the biggest things ever to come out of Brazil. And so naturally, music publishers in America thought, we need to get an English lyric for this thing. Uh, this was the first one by George David Weiss, whom you'll know from our Song of the Week because he wrote The Lion Sleeps Tonight and What a Wonderful World. Here's Connie Evans. I'll sing to the sun in the sky I'll sing till the sun rises high Carnival time is here time of year And as this time draws near Dreams lift my heart I'll sing while I play my guitar I'll cling to this dream from afar Will true Come my way on this carnival day, or will love stay in my heart?
That's the John Jorgensen Quartet, possibly Jorgensen, uh, with Connie Evingson, a singer, a singer from Minnesota. We asked her on the show a few years ago, and she sent me a rather unpleasant rejection letter, but that is a lovely record, so we don't hold it against her. Miss Evingson singing Luis Bonfar's music. And uh, that rather blah lyric by George David Weiss, which comes nowhere near the level of the tune. So uh, other lyricists had a go at it, which is a subject we shall return to. Let's get back to your questions. And it doesn't get much more of an awkward shift in tone than this from a beautiful Brazilian uh, early bossa nova melody to... (laughs) The uh, end of Western civilization. Scott Scherzer writes from Miami Beach. Dear Mark, it's plainly obvious that the elite all through the West are purposefully grinding our civilization into dust. What I don't understand is why they think that they will be immune to the resulting calamity. Their money and status might shield them for a time but eventually the lights will go out for them as well. Why do they not see that this will not end well for them? Well, we go back to what has been happening, which is the Chinese buying up everything for their Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, And what they do is they don't just go to small corners of the Commonwealth, like the Solomon Islands and Barbados, and buy up uh, everybody who matters, which you can do relatively cheaply. But they also go to Western nations. I mentioned earlier that the Biden, you know, if you if you go back to when Joe Biden was a little boy, actually not that little, uh, when Harry Truman left the White House, the former haberdasher, he didn't actually, he didn't have a pension. He didn't have a, uh, enough money to buy a house to live in. He was a man, he was a genuine public servant back in the days when you went into public service because uh, you wished to accomplish certain 
public policy goals, but the price for that, that was that you didn't become stonkingly wealthy. Now, under America's... Con- Don't wave that constitution at me! You think the founding fathers... Listen, constitution boy, you think the founding fathers wanted a parliament full of the world's wealthiest people with huge entourages who fly around on private jets and do not live as any of the little people way down below them live. You know, that's what they have in, that's what they have in common. That's what uh, Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow have in common with Pelosi and the Bidens. You know, it's not normal that. It's not normal uh, to have citizen rep- representatives totally disconnected uh, from the normal rhythms of life. But it is now how a lot of uh, people live. Um, who go into politics. It's it's awful and ugly. They, 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 it's riches, untold riches. You look at Hunter Biden, who is completely talentless, uh, and, and aside from that, has uh, the kind of habits that you normally do not seek out in a business partner. Uh, serious drug addiction, uh, a penchant for uh, buying women and videoing and actually buying young women, not the age of consent, and videoing himself with them, and then being careless about the video, leaving it in a repair shop for everybody to find. That's not normally what you're looking for in a business partner. But Hunter Biden has something valuable to the Chinese, which is that he can buy a uh, influence on Joe Biden. Um, so the, the, the point here is that you would normally, in a healthy society, people who go into politics would make a sum in the low six figures, you know, I don't know, 120 grand, something like that, maybe. But uh, if in return for taking that low salary, they can then do 10, you know, here's the thing, the one trend, the one most obvious transaction is the uh, is the wife of the mayor of Moscow. Now, Trump has been investigated for his connections to Russia for three years, and they couldn't find any. There's a big connection between Biden and Russia, in that the wife of the mayor of Moscow wired whatever it was was it two million or three million dollars into Hunter Biden's bank account. What for? What for? Nobody's interested. Nobody's interested. So we, I think, have different levels of corruption going on here. Uh, for some of these people, Scott, it's um, they're being offered such huge amounts of money. You know, Boris Johnson is now on this kick too. He's he got a hundred twenty thousand dollars to give some speech to someone in Colorado. I forget where it was, a place I've spoken at. Um, I can't remember much about it, to be honest. Um, but just a few years ago, but he got a hundred. I don't know why. There's no real reason to give Boris Johnson one hundred twenty thousand dollars. He's imploded. Um, but people people do this just to keep these guys in play in case circumstances change. And here's a good example of how they, they change. Uh, Liz Truss has been prime minister for a month. For most of that month, the country was at a standstill in mourning for Her Late Majesty the Queen. 
So basically, she's been in office for five weeks, and for three and a half of those five weeks, she wasn't doing anything because everybody was uh, mourning the Queen, getting ready for the funeral, standing in line for the lying in state, and all the rest of it. So basically, her premiership has collapsed in the in a, in a week and a half. Uh, the markets didn't like her mini budget, so today she fired her chancellor. I don't know what he did to deserve being fired. He's a black guy. Uh, as you'll know, in America, it's very difficult to um, fire a black guy. Uh, certainly to fire a black guy without a very good reason would be extremely difficult. But Kwasi Kwarteng, the chancellor of the Exchequer, gone. Toast. History. The fall guy. Who replaces him? Jeremy Hunt. Now, Jeremy Hunt, I know for non-Americans, you've never heard of this guy. There's no reason why you should have heard of this guy. But he was basically a, uh, he ran against Boris for the Conservative Party leadership after Theresa May's premiership imploded. And he was the house-trained Euro candidate, Davos candidate, Chinese candidate. He's very, he loves China. His sister lives in China, and he was saying what we need to do is move to a zero. He's not just net zero. He's zero COVID. He's on camera saying that, oh, his sister landed at Beijing or Shanghai, wherever it was, and she was immediately taken by agents of the state to her flat and locked in her flat to quarantine. And he was commending that as the way to deal with COVID. This guy is like a parody of the China shill globalist nothing who uh, who who uh, just uh, wants to essentially uh, whatever the globalist line is, he just unthinkingly falls in line with it. But the but the but the zero covid thing was a particularly sharp thing, because unless you're not paying attention, you now know basically that three years the last three years has been an experiment to see how easy it is to soften up Western populations for full-scale totalitarianism. And he's on board with that. So Liz Truss, who claims to be, oh, I'm never going to, lockdown was a disaster. You know, I was one of the few people in cabinet who spoke up against that. Unfortunately, I only had an unimportant position of uh, her uh, Britannic uh, Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, so nobody paid any attention to me. So uh, her thing, but nevertheless, I'm uh, no lockdown. We're not having lockdown ever again. That's a complete waste of time. I'm completely anti-lockdown, anti-anti-anti-lockdown, and don't worry, it's not going to happen again. And then suddenly she's there, as I said, she's only actually been doing anything as Prime Minister for a week and a half. And hey, presto, Klaus Schwab and Chairman Xi's favourite super uber lockdown guy is in harness as Chancellor of the Exchequer. So uh, he, he ran against Boris when Boris was Mr. Brexit and he represented the forces of anti-Brexit, the people who were trying to neutralise Brexit, the people who were opposed to the nation state, who, who feel very strongly that the European Union is the future of the world, who are in favour of uh, what uh, someone described to me years ago as the European Unionization of the world, which oddly enough seems to be happening in the sense that bodies that you that that are immune to the voice of the people 
such as the World Health Organization or the International Monetary Fund seem to play. By the way, these were a lot of these were bodies that were set up by America. Because in the 1950s, America did not want to be a conventional imperial power. So they thought the way to do it would be to set up all these uh, dispassionate, non-imperial international bodies. And instead, what's happened, uh, America pays for them. Uh, if you're an American taxpayer, you still pay for them. Uh, but the Chinese basically run them. Uh, so we now have the anti-Brexit, who after a week and a half, and I, I can't even be bothered talking about this, really, because I'm, you know, the way it's looking is that Liz Truss will be gone by, you know, Tuesday afternoon. I mean, so boring. You just have this world's most drawn out leadership com contest for a leader who's already got the lowest approval numbers in the history of approval numbers after a week and a half. The point, the point here, that should tell you something about uh, the fact that this is just like the late seasons of Dynasty. The plot lines are crap and they're accelerating because there is no possibility of uh, character development or normal organic uh, plot development. So they're garbage. They're soap operas, but it's worse than that. They're garbage soap operas. Um, as uh, Stephen Fry said to me, uh, God, no, it must be 30 years ago. He said, oh, I love Dallas. That's good crap. I can't stand Dynasty because that's really bad crap. Uh, and that's the soap operas we've got now. We haven't got the good crap. We've got the really bad crap. And Scott is right that these, these people who are doing China's bidding throughout the West, there's thousands and thousands of them. You've heard of the famous ones like Joe Biden or uh, Justin Trudeau or whoever. The famous ones are well known. But the, but the fact is they're bolstered by all these miniature people in positions you don't really think about at, at Western universities and all the rest of it. And by all the fools at the Chamber of Commerce, some of whom I assume genuinely believe that making China part of the global economy would make China more like America. It's a stupid thing. It was never going to happen. Some of us pointed that out a long time ago. But, but, but I assume people believe that sincerely. It's not possible to believe that now. We're becoming more like China as the Chinese virus and the response to the Chinese virus demanded by people like Jeremy Hunt and the impact of the Chinese virus on freedom of speech and freedom of movement, all of which are, have become very Chinese, should tell us. So the question then becomes, why are they purposefully grinding our civilization into the dust? And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say they're working for the other side. They're not in that whatever that clip that goes around on the Internet is where the two German soldiers are sitting around and one of them says, Hans says to Fritz or whatever it is, uh, oh, are these the baddies? Uh, they don't think of themselves as that. They think we're in a difficult situation. And we need people, and Bill, Bill Gates, a man who makes crap software but leveraged that into becoming the most important person in public health on the planet, thinks we're in a difficult situation. You look at the things they say as asides at Davos, that there are way more people 
than we need, the expensive, useless eaters, as they see it. You know, you have to have food for these billions of people that you don't need and contribute nothing because they're not part of the elite who fly in and sit around at Davos and decide these things. They're talking openly. When they talk about digital currency, when they're talking about ending farming, uh, they are actually talk when they talk about how the optimum population for the planet is 500 million people, they're not really talking about ending farming. They're talking about ending you ending you. Um, that's what it's about, as I quote this line all the time from Neil Oliver's missus, who says it's not about going green, it's about going without. So you can't get anywhere when you point out to people there isn't enough uh, a renewable energy to power our existing world, because the point is renewable energy is to transition us to the next stage of human development where we won't have washers and we won't have dryers and we won't have individual car ownership. We'll be washing our clothes by hand and we'll be waiting for the bus. Because as they see it, that's the there won't be jobs for us. Nobody needs you and you don't and you don't contribute anything. You know, the the world the world is going to be made, as Klaus Schwab says, by a powerful group of people such as you in this room. And that means that you who don't get into the room will just have to take your orders. You might like to go to McDonald's and have a cheeseburger or go to Taco Bell and have a taco, but they're pretty confident of the, after the last three years that you'll be happy just eating the bugs that uh, Bill Gates has selected for you. They talk like this. You know, Dr. Matthew Sweetypants, who's complained to... I invited him on to the Mark Stein show, and he complained to Ofcom uh, to get me taken off the air for having the uh, Les Majeste to invite him onto the show. Uh, so he says that when you say that His Majesty the King is, a, is th the most powerful believer in the Great Reset in the Western world, he says this is going back to, uh, you know, the, the, the old conspiracy theories starting in the 70s uh, from people like, uh, you, you know, whoever it was, Louis Farrakhan or whoever, uh, who said that the Queen and the royal family were space lizards from Alpha Centauri uh, who were secretly running the world. And that may be true. Who knows? But he doesn't have to be a space lizard to be on board with the Great Reset because he's on video at a, uh, a video issued by the World Economic Forum called the Great Reset in which he is the first bloody person you see on camera introducing the Great Reset. Uh, but apparently, according to Dr. Matthew Sweetypants, a guy who's actually, I think, becoming a bit of a dangerous cyber stalker of uh, at least one of our female regulars, Leilani Dowding, with whom he's strangely obsessed. Um, he, he, he doesn't want to come on the show, but he watches the show every, every night just so he can, you know, say things about what Leilani's tweeting. A very sick person, I think, disturbing person. Um, 
But uh, Dr. Matthew Sweetie Pants, it's not a it's not a conspiracy theory when the king himself, just two years ago, three uh, summer of twenty twenty, two years ago, when he was still Prince of Wales, is actually there at Davos launching it. Now Scott is right. These guys all think you know, in the world where you eat the bugs, you don't travel anywhere. You have smaller, shrunken lives. Whether there are actually only 500 million people on the planet, there will only be a small number of elite people who matter and decide everything. And Scott says, uh, once they've ground our civilization into dust, will they be immune to the resulting calamity? No, they won't. Well, one of the things that's, you know, one thing people talk, oh, diversity is our strength, diversity is our strength. Well, wait a minute, in case you haven't noticed, China isn't the least bit diverse. It has over one billion Han Chinese. It's a super, uh, it's, it's a super conventional ethno state, such as Europe used to have until uh, 40 years ago, but with the difference that there's a billion of them, over a billion of them. So it's not even like India, where I think India is the most populous Muslim nation because it has more Muslims than Indonesia. So India has, you know, quite a fractious uh, diversity is our strength demographic divide going on there. They don't have that in China. They're a conventional ethnostate. And they think like a conventional ethnostate, as anyone uh, knows they are quite what we would now in the West call racist because they don't share this and like, oh, everybody's welcome. What's the difference? What's the difference if a town that used to be 98.7% white uh, is is now, uh, you know, only 38.7% white and everyone else has come from the third world? What's the difference? As we were talking about on the Mark Stein show, a nation in the in the West, a nation is no more than Gate Thirty Seven at LAX. It's just an agglomeration of whoever happens to be standing around in it. Uh, no more connection to, and somehow just by being on the, as the lads at vdare.com often say, just by being on the magic soil of uh, advanced, developed societies, these people become. Uh, citizens of advanced, developed societies. So if you like the Scots Enlightenment, you don't need actual Scotsmen for that because anyone who moves to Scotland uh, can simply get that in the air as their world. Chinese, whether this is true or not, the Chinese don't think like that. And uh, when the moment, and they have a very, they have a low view of a lot of the people that they can, you know, they're not going to need to buy up the Bidens and Trudeaus uh, at a certain point. And when that is the case, their real view of the Bidens and the Trudeaus will become known. John Fry or Frey says, Mark, just saw a Twitter post saying a British newspaper just set up a live stream video of a photo of uh, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, next to a head of lettuce on a table. 
the, uh, the it's a competition, I think. Uh, the, the live stream is to see which one lasts longer, the lettuce or Liz Truss. This is the Daily Star who's doing it, and God bless them. <laughs> this is this is the side of Fleet Street I have always liked. You would never get it in the pompous mono dailies of American journalism. It's ridiculous. This. What's the point? You know what happens is, okay, they're very anti Liz Truss now. So they're gonna. What's going to happen is next week, these people will be appearing on British television saying, "Oh, the 1922 committee is taking soundings," and people at the Carlton Club are saying, oh, "We're going to be doing this on the Hundred Years Ago show, by the way, when these things mattered." Uh, that's on the show tomorrow, uh, when these things mattered. But they don't matter when you do it this way. So they're going to get rid of Liz Truss, and then they were going to have another interminable uh, leadership competition in which the parliamentary party will uh, choose uh, uh, Tweedle Crap or Tweedle Bollocks, and uh, that will be put to the party at large, which doesn't like either Tweedle Crap or Tweedle Bollocks, but they'll pretend it's a reasonable choice. I mean, I can't be, I can't be bothered with it. I can't be bothered with it because I, I think I think about that Milton Friedman line. You have to for, these are the wrong people. They're not they have no interest in their electors. You know, in the American system it's too big, you know. So you only you have two senators for a state the size of California. And that means that which is what it, what, what does it have now? Forty million people? You know, so the only ones of the 40 million, that's not a constituency. The only ones of the 40 million who can get the senator's ear are extremely powerful people. Now, I live in a much smaller... I mean, I mean, if you look at Vermont and Wyoming with half a million and change, it's not actually much better there. These are huge-sized... Uh, constituencies for national politics. As politics has drifted, so you don't have a federal government anymore, you have a national government, and getting the air of these national powerful politicians uh, is, is extremely difficult. That's an American problem. But in Britain, in theory, you have uh, 650, uh, you know, members of whatever it is of the uh, House of Commons, and they all represent really quite small and manageable constituencies, but they still, you know, they don't, they don't see that. They're working for a kind of global, many of them, most of them are working for a kind of global commons. There are these spasms of populism that you see in Italy, that you see in Hungary, that you see in 2016 in America and Britain with the one-two punch of Brexit and Trump. But these are spasms, and the duty of the enlightened people is to ensure that these spasms are ultimately neutralized and rendered impotent. Mr. J says the cultural vandalism of Just Stop Oil is a disturbing show of what unbridled religious fanaticism is capable of. These are people who are gluing themselves to the street and preventing ambulances and uh, fire engines and, and, more importantly, just working people uh, getting 
to work. Um, you know, the guest we had on last night and who may well return uh, next week, uh, he's taking seven months off from his PhD. He's in his mid-20s and he's doing the usual leisurely varsity with which many young and not so young Americans will be familiar, uh, where uh, your leisurely varsity just stretches into early middle age. A lot of people can't do that. And so they have to just get up in the morning and get in the car and go off and do their lousy job. And the guys in the line down in the street are the privileged people preventing the working men getting to their jobs. Um, and Mr. J continues, whatever one may think of their core beliefs, their tactics will only get themselves pegged as obnoxious loonies. No, that's not actually true. You know, if you were to ask Dr. Matthew Sweet and the other BBC people that put put me and the Just Stop Oil guy on screen, who's the obnoxious loony? It's me. Everybody else, including the police, sympathises with the Just Stop Oil guys preventing ambulances getting through. A scary thought pops up. When will green zealots graduate to the terrorist ways of the jihadists? Not out of the realm of possibility. No, I've been saying for a decade now, because of my friends that I got to know basically through the Danish Free Press Society, the people I met there who are now dead, uh, who are now living in hiding, uh, who have had their family restaurant firebombed. Um, those people, the, the left-wing cartoonists and artists and writers from the European social democracies who made the mistake of thinking you could uh, piss on Islam the way they'd pissed on Christianity for years. And then they found out it's a whole other deal. And when you look at, say, you know, um, so you don't even have to do the thought experiment, Mr. J, because the guys who shot up Charlie Hebdo and the guys who just want to vaporize your internet account or close your PayPal account or shut you out of your bank account, as Bank of America did to Kanye West and I think some other fella uh, this week, they're already on the same continuum. They're in the shut up business. Sometimes it's enough uh, just to uh, take away your your Twitter, take away your Instagram, take away your PayPal, take away your bank account with Bank of America, and you get the message and nobody knows about you anymore. Uh, but sometimes you have to do it a bit more uh, fulsomely by kicking the door in and uh, gunning people or uh, taking a knife to Salman Rushdie when he's at a literary festival and, uh, and 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 putting him in the hospital, but they're all they're on the same continuum. They're on the same continuum, and they will eventually converge. Oh my, we can't end with that. That's not really a happy thought to end on. Which uh, is it? Uh, have we got any? Uh, we don't seem to have. Well, we'll we'll see if we can find an 
optimistic question. But absent that, we will have a little bit more music to close. We're marking the centenary of the composer Luis Bonfa. He's very big in Brazil. Uh, but as I said earlier, a bit of a one-hit wonder in the Anglo world. We heard the first English lyric to Mania di Carnaval, his theme for the film Black Orthe- Orpheus, and really a very undistinguished lyric by George David Weiss, not an untalented man. Um, but his lyric for that is totally unworthy of a magnificent piece of music. So a couple of years later, they tried again, uh, getting someone else to write words to that tune. This time it was Carl Sigmund, who, among the other glories of his catalogue, wrote what I like to think of as my Christmas song, It's a Marshmallow World. Alas, he didn't rise to the heights of Marshmallow World. Uh, But I very much like Don Costa's uh, arrangement and the orchestration. Uh, And, um, yes... The words are somewhat unsatisfactory, but they are beautifully sung. A day in the life of a fool A sad and a long, lonely day I walk the avenue And hope I'll run into The welcome sight of you Coming my way I stop Just across from your door But you're never home anymore So back to my room the gloom I cry Tears of To my room And there in the gloom I cry Tears of goodbye
Frank Sinatra in fine voice with orchestra arranged and conducted by Don Costa. A day in the life of a fool, which is what Carl Sigmund decided to call Louis Bonfar's theme for the film Black Orpheus, and which choice of title alone constrained the vocal possibilities of the song. Nevertheless, happy centennial to the late Mr. Bonfire. Here is how his music sounds in the hands of its composer back when he wrote it in 1959, Luis Bonfire on guitar. Regular features this weekend, the 100 Years Ago show, Rick McGuinness's movie pick, Stein's Song of the Week, and a special Sunday edition of the Mark Stein Show. Just another weekend in the life of a fool. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.